Well, this is the Fear and Trembling Podcast, and I'm Aaron, the campus pastor at Watershed on Hardaway's campus. Next to me, I'm, I'm Pastor Bill, and I'm across the parking lot in the celebration uh, community. I'm Pastor JB, and since we're locating ourselves, I'm also in the red brick across the parking lot or upstairs from where, where we are currently sitting with Fusion in the great room. Anyway. And I'm Darren Glassford, the executive pastor here at Hard Work Ministries, and I'm not located anywhere. I just wander. <laughs> See, and I, I, I didn't yeah. say I was on a side of the parking lot, but I guess if I'm in the youth building, then fine. <laughs> I just wander. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, and I, it's good to be back around the table today. And uh, last month we mentioned we were going to be diving into a book called Losing Our Religion. Uh, An Altar Call for Evangelical America uh, by Russell Moore. Russell Moore is the current editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. He was the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Southern Baptist Convention. So it was basically, uh, I would simplify it as like the public policy arm of the yeah. Southern Baptist Convention. Good summary. Um, I, I'm, you know, trying to behave because sometimes, you know. You can't. When, yeah. <laughs> I'll just say You it. know me well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, he has also held several roles um, at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, including being the dean of the School of Theology. Uh, the Senior Vice President of Academic Administration and Professor of Theology and Ethics. Um, so quite a, quite a resume. Um, yep. But uh, like I said, current Editor-in-Chief of Christianity Today. So um, yeah, how have you guys come to know Russell Moore? I mean, is it through one of those roles? Was it more through just more as a public figure, anything else you want to add to the laundry list of? <laughs> sure. I'll, I'll, uh, I, I think I've come across him more recently, um, through his podcast. And so I don't know how I stumbled upon his podcast, but okay. I've just, I've appreciated how he engages people who even disagree, uh, and just engages in conversation with respect and dignity and listening. And, uh, so I've, I've appreciated just listening to him talk about, a variety of topics with a variety of different kinds of people um, from a variety of different backgrounds. And uh, yeah, so I, I've just, yeah, I, I found that compelling and, and unique in this time. You know, Yeah. So. And I, I think fair to say one of the reasons probably why we picked this book up was some of, some of that interaction, right? Yeah. Of, yeah. of being able to say how, how has he, tended to treat others at least more, um, you know, recently in podcasts yeah. and things like that, that were, and I think he would say that of. too, considering yeah. the book, it's a more recent posture, maybe. Sure. Sure. I remember reading his posts and things, uh, when he was in that public policy arm with the Southern yeah. Baptist convention and boy, being really taken, he seemed to have good insight and, and a good heart. So that far back, yeah. this was probably even before there were podcasts. Yep. I mean, that's kind of <laughs> how I, I came to know of him as more as a public figure in that public yeah. policy institute. Didn't follow him really closely, but the things I came across, um, I thoroughly enjoyed yeah, and, they and were was helpful. challenged by and were helpful and kind of often wondered, was he really truly Southern Baptist? <laughs> Even <laughs> okay. Because of the tone, because of the tone and, the, and, right. and other, how should I say, preconceived ideas I had about Southern Baptist. 
Sure. What I mean, to be fair, what would what would be some of those preconceived ideas? I think it's fitting because it is kind of fitting for our conversation um, and where he writes. What would be some of those preconceived if if it's OK to say? I mean, is or I, I we, can summarize it in its overgeneralization and I want to qualify that it yeah, is overgeneralization. Yeah. But most of my encounters with Southern Baptist um, – particularly in engaging theology in contemporary cultural issues was our way or the highway. Okay. And sure. often didn't sense that they understood well the counter arguments or the counter positions and they couldn't really engage them constructively. I know that's a really over big generalization, but on a popular level, that was my experience. Sure. And and do you think because I, I mean the first question for us is you know after reading the book what what do you kind of pick up as his main purpose I before diving into that question specifically I mean I think in some ways he's actually probably touching on some of that even yeah. though it's a big overgeneralization and and again we yeah. certainly. I mean, there are all kinds of differences within the church and denominations and things like that. But right. I think that it's certainly, um, if I were you know leaning into that first question, why does he write, is trying to confront some of that mentality in the broader just Christian field, not just his own denomination, but the um, sort of that Christian standpoint that sometimes it's it's an all or nothing approach. It's a... You know, you you're with me, or you're <laughs> hit the bricks. <laughs> yeah, he, I mean, he's writing in this book about his experience, essentially leaving the Southern Baptist Convention in that position. He would no longer consider himself affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention, right? right. And that was a painful thing because of his um, long investment, his historical family connections, and those sorts of things. So it was hard for him to leave, and now in this book he's processing it, yeah, and kind of living that out. So sure. I think he's. Um, I'm borrowing from a podcast that I actually listened to this morning. Oh, uh, so wait a second. Now we're mentioning multiple podcasts that aren't yeah. the Fear and Trembling podcast. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. yes. Um, but I was listening to um, to John Dixon this morning on um, deconversion and deconstruction of the faith, and I think what he's doing is he's not. Deconverting, he's not converting away from Christianity. Sure, but what he's yeah. doing is he's deconstructing his understanding of the faith as it's been passed on to him mm-hmm. um, within the tradition he comes out of, the Southern Baptist tradition, and he's deconstructing in light of who um, who he sees Jesus to be in the Gospels and where um, the teachings of the Scripture is that in the Southern Baptist culture and issues that have have developed have are actually at odds with each other, he would say. And so it's a kind of deconstruction. What what do I need to hang on to here um, in this process, but what do I need to let go of it as well? Yeah, yeah he's leaving behind some of his cultural heritage his cultural to heritage. draw closer to the Savior he's yeah. known and loved and served, right. even in that cultural heritage before. Yeah. Yeah, I found it interesting that like his final paragraph in the entire book and when he says – Quote, make um, the challenge before us is not to, quote, make America great again, but to, quote, make evangelicalism born again. (laughs) And that's not a strategy. That's a prayer. Right. Maybe when we're lost enough, we can refind the capital W way. 
as in Jesus, right? Yeah. Maybe all the dangers, toils, and snares are worth it. Maybe only when we lose our religion will we be once again amazed by grace. Right. Um, and it brought me back to the intro when he says, you know, too often we are in the church and to use the term evangelical because this is a term he uses and we'll talk more about what it, what that means. But uh, he said too often we've been stuck in evangelicalism looking for substitutes to Jesus and then anchoring ourselves in those substitutes. Um, and so part of this you know, I think, like you said, this is this is stemming out of his own journey, and and if sure. we if you read the book, and and miss that, I think you miss the person. It's kind of like when people have said John Calvin, who you know, in our Reformed tradition, you know, we treat him simply as a lawyer and not a pastor, and then we forget that here's this person who was in the lives of people, tending to the lives of people. You know, when we we separate the person from what they're writing. Sure. We miss, you know, he's talking about stories of his own, you know, altar call and, you know, like his experience of coming to faith in Jesus. Right. And it was done in a particular culture, the South, Southern Baptist Convention churches, and it grew up through all of that. But eventually the tension between his culture and his faith, his deepening faith in Jesus uh, led to where he is now. And the book is still pretty raw by my mind and he is you can hear those yep. challenges of how do I pull these things together? And eventually he says, I don't, I'm going to relocate. Yeah. Well, I think he's, yeah. dis, you know, he's disoriented because sure. what he's noticing is he senses that how he, what, you know, the, the church or not like evangelical, the evangelical church, again, we'll get to that. Yeah. Has, the Southern Baptist church, yeah, I want to has, say. Has, <laughs> has shifted and he hasn't. But now he's finding himself on the outside. This this quote that I found uh, on page 20, right in the intro, after the disruptions of the fa- past few years, though, the primary critique of evangelical Christianity from the outside world, as well as from those of us who found ourselves accidental exiles within the church, is not that evangelical Christianity believes and practices all these things, but that we don't, that we suddenly don't believe the things that we've taught, you know, like, so he's found him. I mean, that's part of the disorienting, I think, experience that, that Russell Moore has found himself. And like, especially in a tradition that has, um, prided itself on outreach and growth. mm -hmm. So, um, because it's interesting throughout the book, there are several points where, you know, questions are raised and the responses we can't go forward with this. We can't make this public because it will hurt our outreach. It will hurt our growth curve. And so it's interesting, you know, as he, even in the title, I was like um, losing our religion. What is he talking about when he uses the term religion? Is he talking about <laughs> institutional, the institutional church, or is he talking about that which gives meaning and purpose to our lives? Right. Yeah, that's you know, a very good question. Um, so even in the title, I was a little, the title befuddled me a little bit. See, and I thought in his title, it was a, because of the subtitle, right. a call to, quote, to, in essence, lose our religion. Like, right. like it's, it's time we, the, the things that we're, what we're, what we the are. Institutional, the accoutrements. Yep. Yeah. And, and so um, I want to dive into the evangelical conversation because I, I, I like the word disorienting 
because I think sometimes, and we've talked about this yeah. amongst the four of us, you know, off off air. It's weird to even say off air, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know about his use of the term evangelical. I wonder if like there's some level of just his own disorientation, which has caused him like with this term. Like I would have loved to see more. He uses a term. It, at least I'll say this is my this is my judgment, uh, my my perspective. I feel like he uses the term in three separate ways interchangeably. One is kind of a, the more nationalistic political Christian group. Um, another is sort of the non mainline Protestant denomination, even though it's not really a denomination, but mm-hmm. a group of churches that would include the Southern Baptist. Um, would it, you know, so there's um, the evangelical Christian alliance, like things like that, that join um, Christian groups together. And then the other was just gospel Christianity, like the good news of Jesus. Um, and so, yeah, like I, Which, I got a little yeah. disoriented sometimes when yeah. I was reading and, of like, what do you mean? <laughs> and maybe it's worthwhile uh, talking about where evangel- the word comes from. It's a Greek word. That means the gospel, right? Yep. Euangelion, right? So. I think that's a good starting point to because I think the word's been hijacked. I do too. In as our, as, in our, as in one culture. who has yeah. it in his brand, right? I mean, it it all, means the gospel. Yeah. Like. <laughs> all, all truth here. I'm I'm affiliated with a denomination, accountable to a denomination with evangelical in its name. Yeah, and it predates scripture. It, it, exactly, because the term was used by Greek and Roman emperors sure. when yep. they took the throne to yeah. come in and say, "We have good yeah. news for you. We're here." <laughs> Christianity originally hijacked the term. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. so we we, we made it about the true king, not just the Roman Absolutely. Caesar, the Greek king. Yeah, and right. and there's a history here, and that history has been changed. I think you use the word hijacked. It's been hijacked within the past, oh, I'd guess ten years. Forty years ago, I was comfortable to use that term to describe myself. When I first came to Hardawike, I would mention the term. I don't anymore. And that's a change in our culture. And I don't know that he handles that well. I've found at least three uses of it. Yeah. And he seemed to use them interchangeably and confusingly so by my complaint. Say a little bit more about why, okay, you would before and maybe you wouldn't now. Sure. Well, I, bef- there's a history here, and the word evangelical worked its way into English from the German, where it means essentially, it's picked up from the Greek, Luther, it referred to Protestants. And so in German, the way you say Protestant is evangelische, evangelical. Mm-hmm. It came into English essentially through the Methodist revivals, um, and it has centered around four key things. If, academically, if you study, and I'll just hit these, take a moment, you can find these on the website of the National Association of Evangelicals. There you go. Yep. They should be able to represent themselves. It's nae.org, and you click the button that says, what is an evangelical? <laughs> They will look to the historic academic definition, and there's four key things. Conversionism, the belief that lives need to be transformed through a born-again experience and a lifelong process of following Jesus. But conversionism, there's a definite decision and commitment. Biblicism, that's a high regard for and obedience to the Bible as the ultimate authority. 
Third is activism, the expression and demonstration of the gospel in missionary and social reform efforts. A lot of folks aren't aware that part of the drive of abolitionism in England and the United States was people who would affiliate and identify as evangelicals. That was 19th century. Then the fourth one, I'm not even going to say it, cross centered a stress on the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross as making possible redemption of humanity now those are classic christian beliefs mm-hmm. across the spectrum the evangelicals were folks within each of the various streams and denominations who held those as a particular emphasis yeah. so you would see streams of evangelical commitment among presbyterians among uh, Episcopalians, among even to an extent Roman Catholics. Um, Russell Moore says in his book that his Southern Baptist Church, where he committed to Christ, would not have identified as evangelical. They were Southern Baptist. That's on page 249. Darwin's over here. Um, Can that be true? Here it is. I realized that my son's baptism was, in all the important ways, just like mine. My home church wouldn't have known or claimed the word evangelical because they were Southern Baptist. Right. Yeah. What's happened now, and again, when I came to faith, the face of evangelicalism was Billy Graham, and Billy Graham could mm-hmm. work with Roman Catholics, Presbyterians, Methodists, Lutherans, sure. because it wasn't that a separate identity. It was an emphasis, if you will, within Christianity well, now it's taken on dramatically mm. political terms. Let, let me pick up not a it, not a separate identity, but an emphasis. emphasis. I yeah, like. Helpful. I yeah, think helpful. that's yeah. a helpful, very helpful yeah. way of saying it. Yeah. So you could be a Methodist, but with an evangelical emphasis. That right. was the good news right. movement in and, the United Methodist Church. And even before you go further, like, can we just say, like, all the thing those emphases would be like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, right. those are those are those are beautiful, right? And yet, <laughs> it's now become something. I'm I'm yeah, looking at that's... research now. There's the political narrative that's always confusing, but the research is identifying <laughs> that folks will identify as evangelical even though forty percent haven't been to church in a year, <laughs> haven't prayed in a month, and so suddenly this term is taken on a political slant that it, would almost contradict it's, it's taken historic. on an identity yep that that's, that's very different um, hmm. so in our lifetime it, it, yeah. our lifetime and all, yeah I, maybe it started before JB and Aaron's lifetime but during <laughs> our <laughs> lifetime hey, yo. <laughs> <laughs> wait wait speak up <laughs> so so I think I, I think about this a lot because I I remember um, for me, the the shift culturally around what it meant to be evangelical um, took place around um, Jerry Falwell, yep. um, Chuck Colson, um, and yeah. that whole arena. Um, the, if you remember the "I Found It" campaign, yep. um, this this kind of outreach where the, the posture of the church towards culture. Um, shifted um and it, it it felt like rather than being salt and light in a fallen and broken world 
we entered into a culture war, them against us. And um, it was a very subtle shift, um, but it sometime in that arena, there, there was a shift of from what does it mean to be salt and light, trying to figure out how to live out our faith, and that got transformed into a culture war. So salt and light became, what would I say, guns and sabers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there was a time when you could have an evangelical Democratic Party president. Right. That's what Jimmy Carter was. Right. He was even Southern Baptist and part of that Southern Baptist culture. Right. But even he has felt this same press that um, uh, Russell Moore has. Yeah. They would have similar journeys. Yeah. And it's the identity today that gets so associated. And, and I think that, you know, throughout his whole writing, right, of yeah. seeing it be, become so narrowed and such a, an identity marker, I mean, that he was even getting, you know, I mean, the, the Southern Baptist Church was railing against him. Right. Yeah, he was trying, taking trying a lot to say, of personal hits from people that um, right. should have so been. I'm going to quote him. Um, Go ahead. I, probably out of context. Sorry. Um, <laughs> just give us the page and that'll <laughs> – but, but it's interesting. On, on page 40, he says, The easiest way to success is to erase nuance. It seemed to be leading the crowds while actually following them. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading that and like I don't think he's super nuanced in his use of the term evangelical. Right. Um, I can give him a pass because – Essentially, in a lot of the reading that I'm doing right now, nobody's nuanced on their use of evangelical. <laughs> I mean, it's like um, if I want to generate a reaction, I throw out the term and I indict everybody who is quote unquote evangelical. In other words, they fall into one of these three camps where, mm-hmm. you know, as, as Bill's illustrating earlier, that within the church itself, a group that might be identified as evangelical is primarily a, it's a theological commitment. It's an right. orientation towards life. It's not a political action committee. It's not a political group. It's not Christian national. It's none of that. In fact, those people would be the ones to say, "Wait a minute, that doesn't represent who we are." Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but we're not very nuanced in our culture anymore yeah. in our use of language. But and you, that's problematic. Wouldn't you say? The bulk of the time that it's being used, it's it's those other definitions. Oh yes, oh yes. Right. Yeah. So today. when someone today, yeah, 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 yeah today. Right. today. So when someone says I'm an ex-evangelical, that's a term, right? Right. That they're not talking about the emphases that Bill's talking about. No, no, not always. Yeah, and again, I, I, mean, I mean, particularly I, with the ancient history perspective that I bring from my own life. I could be an evangelical in a mainline seminary, which I was in the 70s. Right. I would have those four emphases. I would stand out from that institution, but I was also the one who was involved in a lot more, you know, we moved into the inner city. Right. So that expressed evangelical in that setting, but now the the terms are just dramatically changed. Mm-hmm. I think what's uh, – Interesting to me in, in the book, and I it's probably my takeaway from the book and, and to wrestle with. Um, and page, I'll start page, he does it several places, but page 41 is convenient because that's where my book is open. Um, <laughs> he says, We see now young evangelicals walking away from evangelicalism, and I think he's using it in the theological commitment there, not because they do not believe what the church teaches. 
but because they believe the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. teaches. Yeah, fair enough. And and I think that's a that's that's a fair critique. Um, now I think he like some others um, sometimes hold the church too high of a position in the sense that we are all fellow sinners trying to work this out and we're going to get it right and we're going to get it wrong. I think we have a responsibility when we get it right to give thanks to God and when we get it wrong to raise our hands and say we got it wrong and And to repent. And that following sentence there to finish off the period. And more than that, many have concluded that the church itself is a moral Moral problem. problem. Right. Right. And so when we're not living in what you're talking, you know, when we're not raising our hand and saying, Sorry, we messed up. We messed up. No wonder. Or, 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 <laughs> helping, or helping people to understand that as an alternative community, um, that we live with a different set of commitments and a different set of standards, and that shapes how we engage and walk and care for people. Yeah, and that was really yeah. James Davidson Hunter's book, um, How to Change the World in 2010, because mm-hmm. um, he, he basically raised a point. What does it mean to live as an alternative community that brings the gospel to bear on people's lives rather than trying to change all the political and social structures around you? Because he basically said that's that has not served the church well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So throughout the book, he, he structures it in terms of going kind of the how do we get back? How do we get back to the core of maybe not necessarily the historical um, evangelical, you know, but how do we just get back to the core of the gospel to be gospel Christians? Um, and he talks about, you know, we have to, it's, um, he structures it around some of his, uh, maybe advice back to the church. I'm just looking at the table of contents here for a second, but, uh, Mm -hmm. losing our credibility, um, how disillusion can save us from deconstruction, um, losing our authority, how the truth can save us from tribalism, um, losing our identity, how conversion can save us from culture wars, losing our integrity, how morality can save us from hypocrisy, um, and then losing our stability, how revival can save us from nostalgia. Um, and in that, yeah, he offers advice, right? He offers some thoughts yeah. of, and I'm just kind of wondering what were some of maybe his thoughts, maybe his his kind of call back to us as gospel-believing, Jesus-following Christians, um, what we can do as we navigate um, evangelical-ism, I'll use that as an ism, um, where maybe that's the more political, cultural thing, um, maybe as we sometimes get stuck in the denominational approach that says, oh, hey, only this segment <laughs> or this segment, you know, I, I, again, we're gospel, all of us are gospel, Christ, you know, um, yeah, what, what, what advice did you find helpful? What thoughts um, do you think are pertinent for a, a good altar call in a way <laughs> to us as Christians? Well, for me, the the chapter five, how revival can save us from nostalgia, this has obviously been a key interest for me. I did a lot of my doctoral work in history of revivals, and it was very helpful for me the way he talked about revival is always drawing closer to Jesus in faith rather Mm -hmm. than a nostalgic return to what we once had. Yeah, Yeah. And and I, I... 
I've always thought that and believed it. He articulated it in a number of fresh ways, more than oh. I'm going to quote at this point. Um, but that really helped me recenter, and I hope from here out uh, express more clearly and helpfully than I than I would have before reading the book. So it, it's a great book to read. I mean, I, I've shared some of my reservations, but I think anyone would benefit walk through the, with his brother um, and what he's been through and gain some insight. He's a, he's a great guy. Yeah, I love in that chapter how. Um Let's see. I think right here he says uh, the goal is not to quote. This is on two twenty one. The goal is not to quote get back to something, but to seek renewal for the future, a renewal that might have continuity with the past, but will also or often look strikingly different from it. And and you know he raises a great question at the end. Like I love how he goes. Are you sure you want everything from the past? You know, when you think about nostalgia, right? And that's often a question that I don't yeah. hear people asking of like, are you sure you want that? Because mm-hmm. every you're going to get everything that comes yeah. with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have a tendency to glorify the past. Yeah. yeah. Other other things that grabbed your and, – and I, I will – maybe I'll jump on that. And I, I love how at the end of that chapter – he, he gives two words of advice, and that's one, um, and this takes me back actually all the way to season two, episode two for the Fear and Trembling podcast. Oh, um, embr- back to the future. Yeah. Embrace <laughs> new communities and friendships. Um, it takes me back to Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk uh, by Eugene Cho. Uh, and the importance in navigating into the future of going, how important it is really to, to have hear other Christian voices. And I love he shared his own journey with Beth Moore. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think actually, Bill, you and I had a conversation and I was expressing some of my own challenges to what he actually was expressing last week um, of going, yeah, sometimes I just compartmentalize people or I put put them them into this particular Mm -hmm. box and then I go, oh, they don't really. And then he's like, no, the person, one of the people that was always praying with me through my challenges, who was there checking in on me was this person that I oftentimes put over, over there, right. you know, mm-hmm. and you go, yeah, while we may, and this is, I think it's just incredibly important when we talk about politics and we'll talk about that in just, just a minute, but I've gone and I don't have the whole as a single individual. I don't have the, the whole picture. Yeah. Um, I don't have the whole picture on God. Certainly. And I don't have the whole picture on the human race and (laughs) our culture and our society. And um, I don't I grew up, you know, in Indiana, farm boy who says he's from Chicago because I was in the South South Chicago suburb. You know, I didn't grow up in New York. I didn't grow up in Hilton Head where I lived for a while. And when we have that community Christian engagement and if we actually think maybe the best in each other versus put our put each other up as enemies or something else like that, um, to go, man, we might actually become more creative. We may start to see maybe more of God's actual plan and working for us in the midst. And then just his his advice to go, and it's going to take prayer, sure. right? Like the end of the day, how often do we get? I'll just talk about myself. How often do I get caught in the midst of the conversation? I get triggered. I get, 
you know, and do I stop? Do I pray? Do I ask for God's guidance? You know, do I go back to Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding in all your ways, acknowledge him and what will make your path straight. Um, and, and so, I mean, just simple, practical wisdom, but if we really live into it, I know I've been a different person when I've allowed myself to sit at the table with people, Christians who fundamentally think differently um, than I do on some stuff. But um, the beauty is I don't have to give up what I believe, but by being affected by others, it's allowed me to see things differently and and think differently. So I think, I, I think kind of in the chapter around tribalism in a similar way, like how wisdom is required mm. um, on page 89. You know, one of the things he says is, is avoid foolish controversies. And this quote just struck me. Every, everything you say should be true, but that doesn't mean you should say everything that is true. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and that requires wisdom, like when, when to speak up and, you know, and yet at the same time, then like a page later, he says, don't self-censor, right? Yeah. yeah. Because so often those who are the most reasonable have self-censored. They're like, well, I don't want to get in that battle because it's not worth it. And so I just felt like those two things kind of, and for me, like when to speak, what to speak, it, it just requires wisdom. It's, you know, and... Um, I think especially because we're in a context in which, where it's not about gaining understanding or finding some agreed common point. It's about winning a battle. Yeah. yeah. And so you um, – as one who sometimes is reluctant to speak publicly, I will confess that. It's not because um, I'm going to get creamed, but it's because people around me that I'm associated with are going to get creamed as well. Mm-hmm. Sure. And and so you becomes how do you how do you care well for the communities right. that that you're responsible to and for right where you don't want false accusations or you don't want them to get I don't know take hit with the shrapnel in a culture in which um, people are feel very free to lodge right. rockets at you indiscriminately yeah. right and and are you engaging in a conversation that both parties are playing fair, you know, like, right. Cause like so often right. the conversation right. is really, yeah. I'm just listening to find my ammunition to, to cream right. you, to use your words. Right. You know? And those are the things of knowing when all of a sudden you might be getting set up. Right. Right. <laughs> or, you know, that listen, man, if I go into this, it's just going to get bad. Right. I'm yeah. not going to be helpful. <laughs> this is just going to get hurtful. Right. <laughs> yeah. It, it's interesting. I used to think my, Insight might be a contribution I could give to the conversation. Um, even when I was wrong, if I gave it, the interaction would correct me and give me some better insight. Yeah. Yeah. Now, many of these flashes of insight, I'm just using as insight for intercession. I'll listen yeah. and pray more than I'll listen and speak. So what I found helpful is, is a reminder in his book, and I don't know if he says it directly. I read it several weeks ago, so he may have, and I just forgot. Um, but going back to to the description that Bill gave of, of evangelicalism, um, as an evangelical, Scripture has always had a place of central authority. Mm. And as a church, our calling is both to, to preach 
and to teach the scriptures well and clearly. And and again, I would say that in evangelicalism, that's a reliance on a historical context and, and trying to help people understand its significance for today. At, at the same time, I think um, in light of our podcast title, um, to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, what what we're about, the church has to be about, is helping people figure out what it means to live out their salvation, their Christ-following, um, in a way that is gentle yeah. and is respectable. Um, and in that process, there'll be places where we don't always agree how that ought to be worked out. And so how do we listen to each other well? How do we listen to each other's stories and, and how they've arrived at that particular point in time? And then how do we enter the conversation in a way that's respectful and gracious um, in a culture that doesn't seem to value those things? Yeah. And and I think along with what you're saying too is it if we're because if we don't watch it to get the win, right? We can, oh, yeah. for, in essence, forfeit our soul. Like he he right. he talks about the fact. Um, this is on 186, but he goes, "It's the magician's bargain: give up our soul, get power in return." You know, right. like, and then he. I love this C.S. Lewis quote. Um, he says, "C.S. Lewis wrote, but once our soul, but once our souls, that is ourselves, have been given up." The power thus conferred will not actually belong to us. We shall, in fact, be the slaves and puppets of that to which we have given right. our souls. And so scripture, you know, yeah. like that need to go, man, folks, we got to make sure we're hanging on to the right thing. And he says, you know, he'll go on to talk about like prioritize then long-term success, not just short-term. Sure. Short-term mm-hmm. gains and goals, pay attention to the means, not the ends. Mm-hmm. You know? But again, that's at the heart of Scripture. Like the yeah. wisdom in Scripture <laughs> goes, man, we're, we're, we're thinking long-term. We're thinking about, and we're thinking about a kingdom that while we think we pray that breaks in here and now, it's a kingdom that also will come finally and fully when Jesus returns. And right. so it, and it won't tension. be my brilliant arguments that bring it. Right. <laughs> you know, so I've got to lay all yeah. those idolatries aside. Right. I've, I've learned yeah. that I have not been able to usher in the kingdom of God. <laughs> yeah. so, so, the, so the question becomes, like, how does our Christ following inform our engagement yep. with people and with, with, with issues and that type of thing? Right. And I think we have to be very careful as Christians, um, particularly evangelical Christians, to say this is how it informs us and this is how it ought to inform it for you. Right. Because that, that gets – that kind of gets back at the – art at, at what he's writing, right? right. He's, he's not saying – and we, we come from a faith that says we, we show up in the world, right? right? I mean we're called to be Christ's ambassadors in this world. World, the evangelical that's church. One of, that's one of the key <laughs> right. emphasis right. that mm-hmm. makes that focus possible. And you use the word inform, right? How right. does our faith inform? Sometimes people will say integrate. And as we were getting prepared, Darwin, I, I, you actually said you, you don't like the word integrate. I don't. And I'm, I'm so why? What, why? what is I, it about that I, word? Because I think that in integrate, we figure out how to take two things and make them one. And therefore, we end up with a theological justification for our particular perspective, our particular way of being. And um, 
So uh, go back to something Bill said earlier um, in my time in North Carolina. I hung around with a lot of Southern Democrats and Southern Democrats were interesting. They were Democrats, as you would suspect. Um, they were also incredibly pro-life. Um, and at that time, I'm dating myself here age-wise. Um, at that time, there was room for people like that. Um, when that particular church I was serving at the time, which I'll leave unnamed, <laughs> um, came into a new association denomination – Someone actually asked, can they really be Christians if they're Democrats? And this, again, was probably the 90s. Okay, yeah. And already then we were beginning to say, if someone has to work out their Christ following, they can only work out in a way that I've determined that they've worked it out. In this particular tribe. In this particular tribe. So when you get to integrate, integrate, okay, it gets narrow. It it defines this tribe is you can only work it out this way. We talk about inform. It's like how does how does my Christ following inform my driving habits? How does Christ following inform my politics? How does my Christ following inform my relationship with my neighbors? How does my Christ following inform my marriage? How does my Christ following um, inform how I relate to my kids and other people's kids. Yeah, rather than a little bit of this and a little bit, bit of, of that, that, that integrated in, together. Integrated together to form one. I, w- I would use the term mishmash. Okay. That's a good um, word. Yeah. yeah. I, I would, an old, it's just an older word. Right. Right. Because when I think of integrate, I would go, no, I mean, I'm, as if I'm called as a Christian to be an ambassador, um, then my not only does it inform, but right. that will influence. It will so integrate yeah. for me tends to be a term that includes includes inform. Right. It doesn't mean coalesce to okay. one okay. side. So that would probably be where I was intrigued when you said that yeah. of going. Okay, so I need to understand what you're saying, right. and, and I see where you're going. Of the, I like the mishmash. You know, like yeah. the, <laughs> it's the infusing or the yeah. the fusing together where all of a sudden it's like. They're equal side of like this political in a way. If I'm if I'm hearing you right, kind of has its own. Right I, again, the first step, the first step here. I mean, historically, at least within my lifetime, I'm sure it happened before my lifetime. Um, was the moral majority? Yep. So when when the moral majority, when that movement took root, um, to be an evangelical meant that you held these social political perspectives. And if you didn't hold those, you were outside the camp. Yeah. Um, and so, again, that's when the term evangelical, I think, started getting confused in our popular culture as well. Yeah, I, I would sure. agree. They began to define that third emphasis, the yeah. activism, yeah. and it got more and more crystallized, and then it got mm-hmm. connected to a tribe. So yeah. you'd see it kind of you see this – I can look back historically and see the seeds in the 80s mm-hmm. started bearing fruit by the 90s and lately yeah. it's just all of this stuff coming home to roost. Right. And I mm-hmm. that's why I avoided the term evangelical because really becoming a young adult throughout the 90s and then right. an adult, you know, like – I was – that's what I was watching and seeing and experiencing and I was like, yeah, I'm not going to – you know, I didn't know the the roots where right. I was like, oh, yeah, let's reclaim the roots, you know. Right, but right, right, uh, it was like, right. no, I'm not 
And, yeah, I and, believe in the gospel. Euangelium. Even in some issues. I mean, John Newton, ardent abolitionist, author of uh, Amazing Grace, but English speaker from what, the 1700s, mm-hmm. he would have been part of the evangelical stream of the Anglican Church. Right. Yeah. And so it would have to include him. And what's sad is right now, I use the term theological evangelical or political evangelical. Mm-hmm. I would yeah. say I'm a theological evangelical, and that's too long to say in common conversation. <laughs> so I just keep my mouth shut. But John, I'm happy to be with John Newton. I mean, right. this is a godly, influential guy. Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think we're hitting at why is it important for us? I mean, our faith, I mean, think about the abolitionist movement, right? Like think about major movements throughout world history. And we don't, I mean, we don't have the time, but the roots always come back actually to Christians. Amazingly so. People who... Um, I mean, at the time of this recording, we're getting ready, the three of us, to preach on our identity mm-hmm. in Christ. I mean, when your fundamental Christian identity is to view dignity yeah. in humanity, like in people, right. to say you were created in the image of God, at all of these major, you know, it's not popular today necessarily to say this because we can look at our faults going back right. earlier, mm-hmm. but to go, no, at the heart of most of those major social justice reforms and movements were Christians yep. yeah. who said we value human beings even though they don't look different or they don't come from the same side of the tracks or, right. you know, and he picks up on that in the intro. He goes, yeah. I, I can be, you know, against abortion and for refugees, you know, like, and for the homeless. Right. And yet both and see the dignity of those God has blessed with great wealth to, you know, and so, yeah, I mean, great conversation guys. Um, Thanks. I mean, this is one where I think, you know, he sees the divisions and I I think that's what is at all of our heart. That's why we're sitting around the table is going, that is not God's kingdom is not one filled with division. Right. It's filled with reconciliation, people being made right, that there is dignity in each other, dignity even in our difference. Um, and then it's at the table together that we can, we can actually yeah. become that community God's God's made. So uh, Russell Moore losing our religion and altar call for evangelical America um, and for us, you know, at Fear and Trembling, you can you can certainly find us at www.fearandtremblingpodcast.com. Uh, you can email us if you have questions, comments, fearandtrembling at harderwike.com, H-A-R-D-E-R-W-Y-K. Um, you can also check out the podcast at harderwike.com. Um, next time we are going to... Like we said, this this season we're we're diving in different mediums. Um, yeah. We're going to go back to Netflix. So if you haven't picked up a Netflix subscription, do a seven day or you know trial. But we're gonna. Um, there was a movie that came back um, came out what about a year ago? Jesus, about, yeah. Jesus Revolution. Um, Bill, Bill, you want to give us a little taste? I mean, <laughs> well, it it's 
you'd call it a docudrama, and it, it follows three real lives from the, uh, the 70s and California into the 60s, and a, a move of God that shaped lives. Um, I happen to be connected to it because I was kind of came to faith in the North Carolina version of that, okay. and we'll yep. talk some more. <laughs> but how is it that these people who are alienated from one another and from common culture suddenly found themselves drawn to the person of Jesus. So a great story of, of three uh, real-life people. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, I look forward to – I have not yet watched it, so uh, I'm looking forward to, to finally diving yeah. in and, um, and and talking about it. So as for uh, us, I'm – again, I'm Aaron. And I'm Bill. I'm JB. And I'm Darwin. And uh, this is Fear and Trembling. So until next time, God's peace.